you either can have a kind and loving organization or you can have an excellent organization. And it's a very personal choice. If I'm gonna compete in the Olympics against the best companies on the planet, then I gotta have the best team members. You gotta have the best players. And I don't think you should apologize about it. This is a special episode of B2B a CEO. Last month, we had a special event for all of our CEOs. We hosted a conversation with Foundation's most illustrious CEO, Reed Hastings, the CEO and co-founder of Netflix. My partners, Steve Vassalo and Mike Shu interviewed Reed about his new book, No Rules, Rules. Reed discusses the evolution of Netflix and what he's learned over the decades but how to build a high-performance culture. This episode is a great follow-up to the discussion with Frank Slutman, who also talked extensively about building a high-performance culture. While there are many similarities in their approaches, there are also some pretty fundamental differences. If you are scaling a startup beyond 100 employees, I would highly recommend listening to both episodes back-to-back and asking your leadership teams to do the same. Well, welcome and thanks very much for making the time to participate. I'm going to share uh, interviewing duties with my partner, Steve Vassallo. Uh, but I would say, you know, my opinion, the no, no Rules Rules was so fascinating to read. It's a different sort of business tome. So many others uh, assert one principle and then spend the next 200 pages <laughs> repeating and repeating and repeating. And no rules, rules was whether you buy in or not is a step-by-step approach to uh, producing a high-performance culture. Loved it. Yeah, as Mike said, uh, you know, the business school libraries and startup founder nightstands are simply littered with business books, mostly ghostwritten by CEOs doing a victory lap. And for those who haven't had a chance to read it all the way through, can you give us the elevator pitch on why this book is so different from other business books? Well, all of you guys are supposed to make new mistakes. Uh, Don't make the same mistakes that I made in my first company, which was obsessing about process and error prevention and, um, you know, trying to have all the trains run really efficiently. And the lesson out of that first company was despite um, starting off very strong is it got less and less inventive over time. And eventually we got lucky that we got bought by our biggest competitor. And in Netflix, from the beginning, we've tried to manage on the edge of chaos. And it's unintuitive because you're told that as your company grows, you got to grow up. And and if you actually fall into chaos, then it is bad. And then you put all those rules in. So the trick is to manage on that high performance envelope where you're on the edge of the chaos. So um, that's really what the book is, is a bunch of techniques for managing on that edge. You kind of build the book in these these stages of, I think, increasing confidence for CEOs. And the the base of that pyramid is really starting with great people. Um, And, uh, you know, it's clear that Netflix has been successful, not because you have good people, but because 
you find all these clever ways to find the best people, you recruit them right way, you motivate them, you enforce the things that are working. Every company always tries to get great people. It's like been conventional wisdom, you know, forever. So there's not material differences in all of our firms in that. The only fundamental big difference is us modeling the company like a professional sports team. Yep. Okay. And you play for your position every game. And you understand that in professional sports, okay? And so the big difference with Netflix and, and typical company is our exiting, not our recruit. I wish we could do recruiting better than all the other firms, okay? Uh, we have not found an edge there. The inefficiency is in, in all of your companies is that you've got this mushy version of loyalty in your head um, and because you set your companies up as, you know, friendly and then we're a family and we stick together, you know, it's a huge conflict to let someone go. And if you set it up your company or organization like a professional sports team and you get people to understand the joy of that is you get to play with incredible people. Every organization has some incredible talent. But if you can get it to be, say, 80%, then you get to run really loose. What is your advice for CEOs that know the sort of overarching, you know, better people, best people, but don't yet know how to kind of level up the talent? Well, I would say you either can have a kind and loving organization or you can have an excellent organization. And it's a very personal choice. So a family is kind and loving and you stick with your brothers, sisters, kids, no matter what, they can do crazy bad things and you stick with them because that's what we value as a powerful family. And because all firms, you know, 500 years ago were families and then we've grown up slowly, we still have this like family metaphor for firms, like a good firm is like a family, okay? Um, and so you gotta kind of break free of that and say, if I'm gonna compete in the Olympics against the best companies on the planet, then I gotta have the best team members. And I don't think you should apologize about it. You thrive on excellence. Excellence is what drives prosperity, progress, goodness for human beings. Your job as an organization is to get the highest excellence that you can. And I don't think people are going to debate you. They'll say, well, it's not a kind organization. That may be true. Okay. It's not unkind either. Okay. Just like, again, a bad professional sports team, people yell at each other. They attack each other. They, you know, are not supportive. A good professional sports team, one that wins championships, the people on that team care for each other deeply and they work well together. So remember, you want, to, you want to be a great professional sports team, and there's lots to read about what makes that work. So it wasn't called out explicitly in the book, but I recall the board meeting when you showed up and demanded that the board convince you that you were the very best CEO candidate for the company at the time. And uh, uh, so I think we stumped, fortunately, we stumbled enough to convince you that yes, you were the right guy. No, Bob Iger would not do as well as you could. But my, my question is, how many people in the company at that point knew about that? And, and what was the impact, if any? I think that's one example of 50 
that it helps if the leader, me in that case, demonstrates their own commitment to excellence um, in their relationship, say with the board or a relationship with outside stakeholders. So uh, there's also many others um, where I have to role model, you know, a thoughtful, uh, so not, you know, a flip, not wake up one day and say, I quit, or this person's fired, or, you know, you want to be very thoughtful in the decisions, but that you're willing to do hard things, um, you know, including moving people on that I'm quite close to, uh, personally. So, again, it, as long as I and the leadership team lives the values of uh, aspiring for excellence, contribution to our members, to our employees, to our shareholders, then, um, you know, again, you get stories like that. And, and again, many other. So just think of it as if excellence is the North Star, what would be the things that I would do to try to be examples of that and stimulate that throughout the organization? Reed, I'm, I'm sort of stepping through maybe the next kind of element uh, if people is the bottom of the of the foundation, as it were, this culture of candor, and I love the sort of notion of farming for dissent, emphasizing yeah. transparency, uh, these circles of feedback, um, and all that stuff really resonated for me. Um, but I also could imagine uh, some people taking this as license to be, you know, the brilliant asshole in the company. Um, and I'm curious, sort of, how um, you talk about and think about the four A's and how you coach managers to go about giving these unfiltered feedback while not demoralizing their teammates. Yeah, I mean, there's a human tension between kindness, which we aspire to, um, and honesty, which we aspire to. Uh, and you wanna make sure that in your organization, brutal, uh, um, rude behavior is not tolerated. Um, if you're, the goal is not honesty per se, the goal is excellence. So you wanna communicate in the most effective ways to achieve an improvement in excellence. And that's a mixture of kindness and, and honesty and it, it varies by culture. You know, we do it a little bit differently in Japan than we do in Brazil, than we do in the US. But again, at each level, it's trying to achieve the most excellence. So keep the excellence as that North Star and then say how much more honesty about how people feel or perceive or uh, can I stimulate to achieve excellence? And Ray Dalio has some great uh, stuff in his book, Principles, and he models it to be pain. So when you give each other feedback, it's painful, which is why we avoid it, okay? But, you know, when we all exercise and we know when we're doing those last crunches, those last push-ups, it hurts. And yet we know that's the part that makes us stronger. So his thing is if you can tap into that physical exercise pain and say, the more that I'm feeling the burn, it's an emotional burn, the stronger, the better, the more excellence I'm getting, then you can learn to tolerate it. And like when you first start exercising, you like, you can't tolerate the pain very well at all. Okay. And then like, if you run a lot, you get pretty good at it. Um, and so think of it like that. It, if you get the, the pain is the ego, basically the impact to the ego. And so if you can develop the muscle of letting your ego get hurt, okay, and take it like you do if you're running hard, you will get stronger and learn more. 
okay? Um, but again, the goal is not brutality for its own sake. That's just cruel and, and stupid and, and inappropriate. The goal is how much excellence, but just like in running, how much excellence the people who are really good runners can have learned over time to acknowledge the pain in their body, but run through it. Okay, and it's something you have to learn over time. So if you if you can model for people that emotional thing, uh, that will be helpful. And you know, again, if it works to have an exercise metaphor, that may be good. There was another interesting event. This was the board meeting in which you wanted to discuss joining Patty and the kids for a year in Rome. So I mean, once again, the board is stunned, right? And jaws drop and. By the way, there was no doubt in my mind that you were going to go. So, you know, it wasn't like he's asking permission. He's telling us he's going to go. So what do we need to do to get ready? So there was concern about how would the company run and what would the street think if and when it discovered that the CEO was not physically in Los Gatos. So once again, what's your answer to those two questions? And was it in? impactful in non-obvious ways inside the company? So at the time we were a public company um, just doing DVD rental uh, only in the US. Um, we had hoped to be international, but the postal systems in various uh, countries didn't work that well. Um, so that's why we uh, had stayed in the US. And you know, there's always a tension between all of our personal lives and our work. You know, what sacrifices do we make? People talk a lot about work-life balance. And the problem with that metaphor is it's zero sum. You know, you're sort of getting more or less of, an, of another one. And so we really try to talk about work-life integration. And, you know, smart integration is like, you know, to be with your kids and family a bunch. And then maybe you work late at night or maybe you work in, you know, in odd hours or, you know, so, and, and that integration is, uh, you know, when you're at home at dinner with your family and you're actually on your, on your mail all the time and distracted. So, you know, the skill of having a great professional life and a great family life and being a great spouse and a great uh, friend, you know, is to figure out good integrations that, you know, bend the curve or shift the curve. Um, so again, we had wanted to live abroad. Our kids were third grade and sixth grade. Um, so it was mostly a kid oriented thing. Um, and clearly in the short term, Netflix was not gonna, uh, we were not growing internationally. So I realized that I cared enough about this uh, that you know we should do it. And if the board wanted me to find a new CEO, um, because it's a public company, you can't kind of, you know, be in Europe for half the year. So I offered to help find someone else. And I think the board realized, okay, everything that we'll lose by Reed being away half time is less than we would lose with a complete transition. Um, and so that's why it was uh, accepted. And then it was up to me to in the two weeks I was on, you know, a, my family had stayed in Rome full time. So, uh, you know, I worked like crazy in the two weeks that I was back. Um, and by and large, we made it through. It was challenging, you know, personally, because I was sort of in 80%, you know, dad and husband and the 80% CEO because of the trap, the constant jet lag. Um, 
And this, you know, 2005, when we did this was roughly speaking pre-internet. I mean, you could do email, um, but, uh, you know, not, not a ton more. Um, so again, that's an example, I think, of first principle thinking, which is how do you find ways for your leaders to have full and rich lives and be a great executive and not partition? You know, you're either in California, in the office, or you're not, you know, those kind of binary thinking. Now, the world's progressed a lot since 2005. And so the idea of working remotely to all you guys is like, I, <laughs> motherhood and apple pie. So you have to say that was 15 years ago. So what would be the equivalent example now would be, you know, a lot more uh, aggressive. So again, just think about it, I think in that back to excellence, which is, is it gonna help the person develop? And then as Mike referred to, you know, just living in Rome for a year, you know, gave me a lot more exposure to Europe and how people think and, and really helped us uh, as we expanded globally, you know, uh, 10 years after that. Terrific story. As you were talking, Reed, I was thinking, yeah, you're, you're, you kind of at the beginning of the book start talking about, you know, releasing relaxing controls particularly things like vacation, travel, expense policies. And it's interesting because like that to you is the easy stuff. And I, I can imagine so many CEOs going, wait, what? Like that can't possibly be easy. But the hard stuff um, comes later, um, you know, kind of in the building up of trust, uh, if you will. And that's around sort of like, how do you build this almost, I was thinking almost like an army of informed captains um, where individuals really can uh, make big decisions, uh, you know, multi-million dollar decisions around, you know, what, what shows to green light. Um, and I think um, it, it seems so obvious after you've relaxed the controls and the small stuff that the big stuff is kind of fall next. I'm curious how hard uh, it was to remove kind of where were the tiers where maybe things got hard to, to take away the controls that might help kind of like ease our CEOs through, through this process as they're attempting to kind of follow your lead. Well, like most of you probably have already given up on, you know, having, you know, 16 days of vacation for people who are there for two years and, you know, sort of, you know, that's such a rounding error um, in how much people work. Uh, so that's, you know, one, if you think about agriculture, um, there's a danger in only planting one version of corn, you know, across a whole country which is if a virus hits, uh, no pun intended, uh, you know, you can lose the entire nation's crop. And so you really want diversity in that. And in ecosystems, generally, you want it to have this, think of this, uh, the image of your organization as a fertile ecosystem, okay? And it's got all these interacting subsystems and no one fully understands it, but it's very fertile and healthy. And the opposite of that is the clean room, you know, the semiconductor world that, you know, Mike uh, knows so well. Uh, and it's like, you know, perfect precision, perfect error production and a, or a hospital, you know, operating theater. Um, so that's not what you want, right? You want this fertile ecosystem. And then the less rules make sense that occasionally in the ecosystem things go wrong, but nothing goes wrong catastrophically because you've got so many you know, different interacting systems. And then your job as leader is a healthy ecosystem moving in the right direction. So you've got the vision and you've got the culture, okay? And you, if you get the vision wrong, you're screwed. 
okay? Because you're basically like, we're building something the world doesn't want. Uh, I don't know, another disk drive company, okay? And you could work really hard and have a great culture. You're just not going to make it, okay? Uh, so you got to have a, the idea of what you're offering has to be fundamentally powerful, but then you got to execute. Um, and that's, think of it as your job is to stimulate a healthier and healthier ecosystem where all these plants and insects and fruits are growing. Those are all different people and competencies, and they're all helping each other. And so if you have that metaphor, as opposed to, again, for hundreds of years, the factory um, producing automobiles or penicillin drove most of the economy and economic growth. And so it's natural that the factory metaphor infects our thinking. Okay, because it's been so powerful. So within all of you, by default, is factory mentality. Okay, here's the boss giving the orders. Here's everything. I got to reduce error. It just it permeates. And and look at how you went to school. You know, it's like thirty people in a cell and about. Okay, we were all like factory, factory, factory. And then, as you know, real inspiration and 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 innovation doesn't come from that, right? And so we don't learn these other metaphors such as the ecosystem, but that is the metaphor that will have your organization um, be prosperous and creative and, and fun and stimulating. So Leslie and, and Barry, so VPs of marketing and, and finance, extraordinary executives and real adults. Um, but there was dynamic tension for sure, much like my experience personally is sales and finance <laughs> often have to have friction. One group wants to spend all the money and the other group wants to be the resistance to all of that. Um, so there, there certainly was, was some of that. And I give huge credit to both of them as individuals um, for making the relationship work. But were you doing something behind the scenes that would be useful to understand? You know, it's about 15 years ago now. I was not as committed to honesty um, as I am now and I found effective. And I still had a bunch of conflict avoidance in me. So I would say I, I didn't do as good a job as in their conflicts um, as I would today. Uh, but at the time, what we did is we, you know, got them to talk through, I think there's a story in the book about that, where Leslie uh, came up with a metaphor, you know, for Barry, um, and that helped. But the way I would approach that problem now and encourage you to do it is, it's a very bonding, so you got your top team, say seven or eight people, two of them are conflicting, and like, let's just put it on the table. You know, uh, Josephine and, you know, Gertrude are conflicting and, and, you know, they both care about the company. Everyone agrees with that. They have different ideas. Let's talk through how that works and, you know, and, and, and make it an excuse to build a collective team bond. Because the, when you can be vulnerable in front of six or eight of your teammates and they can be, it's an extremely powerful experience. And so, um, you know, it's, it's me growing in comfort that I could handle that discussion and then it wouldn't blow up and explode the company, um, which is what I might used to be afraid of. Oh my God, what if we get together and address this conflict and they end up screaming at each other and one of them quits and it's a disaster. And so I, I'm scared of that uh, happening because I'm, I'm, I'm not that good facilitating. I don't know what'll happen. And so for me, it was just in growing skill 
of being able to facilitate those things so that I wasn't sure what the outcome would be, but it wouldn't be disastrous. Most of the human conflict is around, they value different things. So maybe Barry values that we've got enough cash in the bank that we don't have to do this financing and you know, Leslie values growing or whatever the tension is. And so it's teasing out for them, you know, what, what are they valuing that's different? Um, and so, and again, you enroll your peers and you set a good role model of just having a, you know, it's just the kind of discussion you would have with a good friend. You just answered Paul Holland's question. He's, uh, he's with us too. Uh, and he's, he said, or asked of you, knowing that you are a student of history, it'd be tempting to describe your amazing exec team over the years as a team of rivals. However, I think most the, the most remarkable thing is that that group probably got 10 CEO offers a year each. Um, how did you keep and motivate such a strong exec team around you for so long? And it sounds like you answered that, but is there anything else to build upon there? I think it's a lot about fundamentals. I'll give you a simple example. So uh, 20 years ago, people used to do a lot of fancy stock plans. Golden handcuffs was the key phrase. You were going to have golden handcuffs for people. And it's like, what kind of metaphor is that? You know, it's like, what do you, you really want to handcuff your employees? I mean, it, it, would you want to be handcuffed? I mean, you know, it's, and so like we got rid back in maybe 2002, all stock vesting. And so it's fully, all the stocks fully vested because I don't want my managers to be able to have bad working conditions, but someone stays because they have golden handcuffs. I want my managers to constantly have to work to have a good working environment. And so, I mean, it was risky at the time, but you know, our attrition you know, went down from there and not up because people focused on the fundamentals. How do I have a good working environment where people have autonomy, they can contribute, they're growing, you know, and, and sort of put compensation, you know, a little bit to the side. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that's helped. Um, but again, also, if, you know, if some people go off for another job, we try to celebrate it as long as it's a bigger job than we had for them. You know, if they do the direct lateral, that's clearly a loss to us. But if someone, you know, moves from VP of marketing to head of this thing, Again, you know, it hurts us a little bit, but it's great to see us as a way to develop opportunity. So awesome. I think this is a related question. You may not, well, there was a point in time at Netflix, which you had to laugh every board meeting because you and Tom primarily were working on our DVD breakage problem, right? So customers were pissed if something showed up that was flawed and we took a hit when DVDs were returned. And so the CEO was working on packaging among other things. So the red envelope that came out of that. So later, you may not recall this, I suggested to you that given that that was such, I thought a fascinating era at that we ought to get together the people who were involved in that and go out and have dinner and some laughs and think about it. And you very quickly said no. And so I said, oh yeah, why? Because you didn't want to create this sort of sense that there was a special group inside the company that had something to do with seniority or favoritism. Is there something of a broader principle around that? It's always a challenge trying to figure out, especially say around DVD when you knew it's temporary, we wanted to be really great at it, but um, you know, it's gonna, it's only gonna be around for a couple of years. How much you would want to signal that this is super important? Because I mean, it was very important tactically but uh, strategically, we still have this big evolution to streaming coming. Well, I, I can't help but, so the most striking feature of the culture to me, probably because I 
participated in it were the QBRs, the quarterly business reviews. I, I think the one way to describe the job of a CEO is to set direction for the company and then make sure you've got alignment. And a direction, by the way, I always believe it's better to be confused than wrong. Um, but the direction setting is not necessarily hard. I mean, you can, you can flub it, but that becomes clear pretty early on. It's the alignment part. And so here was a quarterly meeting of the decision makers within the company, a multi-day meeting in which part of it was sort of readouts of things that people took as assignments. And part of it was problem solving. And a lot of it was socializing and getting to know one another. So the job was to fully participate and then go back and report out the results of the QBR to the people you, who worked for you. I mean, it seemed to me to be the perfect way to make sure there was a single communication that everyone was hearing and everyone had, and in a high talent, right? And everyone had the obligation to go back and communicate that to others. True. So the theory on people that- are involved now. A, a lot. It's, it's yeah. you know, sort of the top uh, 15 or so percent of the company. Um, so now we're 8,000 people. So it's about 1,200 that go to QBR. So, but roughly think it stayed about 15% of the company for a long time. Uh, and we fly everyone in around the world and get together once a quarter pre-COVID. Um, and that's really the time to get aligned. So if you're not going to micromanage you really have to, to prevent falling into chaos. Absolutely. You really want to be clear about what we're doing, what the trade-offs are, you know, to, to be instructive around the principles or values rather than the specifics. And we use those QBRs for that to stimulate that muscle. It gives people a sense of community. Um, and so meeting, I mean, we've done a high investment in, um, infusing values and infusing examples and teaching rather than a high investment in control. Like a, let's take another case on our budgets. We don't really have budgets. We have rolling forecasts of like what's going to get spent. Um, but you're not measured on, did you spend relative to plan? And we don't negotiate the annual plan. What are you going to do? What are you going to spend? And then you've got to stick to that. Um, because the world changes so quickly, you want people to be flexible and evolving. And so on some things we're much looser, uh, i.e. budgets, but then on, but what we do to compensate for that, to avoid chaos, is to really uh, focus on an intensive amount of time together, at least on the leadership team, uh, to invest in their understanding of, say, the P&L or, or anything else. So as a former product designer, I'm just so struck by your approach to continuous reinvention, whether it's rent return, the subscription and streaming and content creation today. Um, but when I came to the Valley, it was like, as you got bigger, you basically got slower and less focused. Uh, and you guys somehow have defied these laws of physics around innovation anyway. Uh, I'm curious, given how thought you've been about, thoughtful you've been about organizational design, how much of the Netflix culture is intentional versus learning as you go? Well, the culture is learning as we go. That is, <clears throat> It's not true in 2001, we could write out the golden tablets. Um, so it kind of got pieced together bit by bit, uh, you know, like Leslie came up with um, context, not control in 2006. And, you know, so it's like bit, bit by bit and it's continued to improve. 
again, but the North Star of we care about excellence above everything and for excellence in the long term. So therefore, you need flexibility. You don't want to over optimize for the short term. Um, that part stayed constant and then we evolve along the way. Thank you guys. I hope you all get something out of this. Hope you enjoy the book. And most importantly, I hope you surpass the Netflix culture. We got to build on Sun, HB, Oracle, many others. Your job is to say, okay, that was nice. We got some good ideas. But what we've done is even more creative and achieves more excellence. Thank you all. Awesome. See you soon. That's it for this episode. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. B2B as CEO is brought to you by Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with 27 IPOs, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMogul, and Sunrun. I'm Arshu Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you're interested in growing from a technical founder into a business leader. Drop me a line. Thanks and see you next time.